Ryan Stan here with ASEP Frontline with one of my uh, true favorites. Um, and uh, we've actually only talked, this is the second time, and, and last time was in um, a little side room in, in Dublin where we ended up uh, talking uh, uh, when I thought it was 15 minutes and ended up being 45. And so um, Alex Sirides um, from uh, Keeping a Watch on the South Side of the Globe for us um, uh, works in uh, Wellington. And um, uh, actually, interestingly, the second uh, critical care specialist out of Wellington that we've had on that. So we've got a uh, we've got a we've got a large representation for a medical school, which is unusual since it's a little rural medical school. And then we have an unusual representation from Wellington. So um, uh, thanks so much, uh, Alex, for joining us uh, once again here on ASAP Frontline. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back, Ryan. It's great to see you again. And, uh, of course, a home run topic for uh, you. Um, that really, um, we're getting back to those definition, the definition of is. What is the definition of is? In your case, it's the definition of everything. So talk about the, the topic um, and what it means from the standpoint of critical care. So I'm quite wary of becoming the dying guy because that's what I always seem to end up talking about. It's kind of what I was talking about last year. I don't just do dying. I'm an intensivist, so I do a lot of living. So 90% of the patients are the living patients, but the 10%, the ones that die, I'm generally more interested in just because we wonder whether we should have done everything or whether doing more would have changed the outcome. So my, my talk really was given to me, as I think a lot of the SMAC topics are, um, based on presumably interests that I've expressed in the past and talks I've given before. And the only topic I was given was doing everything at end of life with the word everything in quotes, implying that it was subject to interpretation. And what I chose to do was to talk about what everything means to different people and took it essentially from four viewpoints. That of the patient, of their family, and then from the doctor's perspective, but also looking at the economic aspects of doing everything in healthcare, which I think is often overlooked. Um, there may be an assumption amongst some healthcare professionals that money is infinite, but obviously we know it isn't. And increasingly, I think around the world, healthcare budgets are being looked at. And I think there's a, there's a conflict between us doctors wanting to do everything and the cost of what doing everything actually has. But that's not just financial costs. There are emotional costs to the families of the patients that we do everything for. And obviously, there are costs for the patients. And in certain healthcare systems, there are obviously financial costs for the patients as well of doing everything. So I think we, we, we're conflicted because we're driven as doctors and healthcare professionals to do the best for our patients. And often that means doing everything that we see fit that may not match with what the patient actually wants done. And I think you're seeing that more as a focus. Uh, I think it's going to become more and more of a focus, especially in U.S. healthcare, where we're um, continuing to balloon the cost with, with no significant improvement seen on the back end. And... Um, I mean, you actually even talked uh, talked about that, um, and I think we even talked about it last year with that amount of dollars spent on those last days, months, couple of years of life, you know, being able to add quantity, but then you also talked about the quality aspect of what we're doing. So are the dollars spent worth the quality that we get back on the back end? And that's, that's, a, that's a very good question, and I think the answer is as doctors, we often don't know. Certainly in critical care, um, within ED, within your specialty, once they leave ED, you generally don't really know what happens to them. In my specialty, we don't really know what happens to them once we leave ICU. Part of our role is to get them out as soon as possible, and getting someone out of ICU alive is probably considered a 
were the end point. But what we know little about and what we're increasingly disturbingly now finding more and more about is that people are leaving critical care with significant disability. There's a couple of papers I cited that were looking, some of the work that ANZICS is doing is looking now at mobilising patients, the Australian Intensive Care Society, mobilising patients early in the intensive care unit, even if they're ventilated, just to try and decrease some of these comorbidities that they acquire, weakness being a major one. But there's some incredible data out there looking at people. For example, one of the papers I quoted is, um, I think it was from JAMA, looking at patients who had been ventilated for just more than 48 hours. And these were people who were ambulance, normally healthy functioning individuals who for whatever reason had required to be intubated for two days as a minimum. And a third of them, only a third of them, were able to walk out of hospital unaided. Now that's incredible if you think of the, what you acquire simply by being admitted to a critical care unit. And I think as intensivists we're very navel-gazing, we're very inward-looking, and we often don't know what happens to the people because they don't go home from ICU often, most of the time, they go to a ward. And then we never see them again because we look back inwards at the patients we're looking after in the ICU. So I think we, we're not well-placed to advise necessarily on what everything is because we don't know the effects of doing everything to our patients. Some places have critical care outpatients. They'll look at people who've been admitted for longer periods of time. I know in the UK there are several centres that do outpatients and try and close that loop. But I think to our dismay as intensivists, we, we don't look at the effects, the long-term effects of what we do to people. That's physical effects, cognitive effects. There's a whole variety of things that we do. And you, you actually talked about the thought that one of the fallacies that we have is in medicine is overestimating um, the benefits and under, underestimating those potential negative effects. Talk about that. Well, there's this great theory called optimism bias, which is that as doctors and patients, we always want the best that we do. We would hate to think we're causing harm. There was a, a JAMA paper that looked at a multiple series of reviews where people had been asked what they thought the effects of their interventions were and then looked at the evidence supporting that. And what they found, not surprisingly, was that doctors greatly overestimate the benefit of what they do and underestimate the harm. There was also some studies looking at the relationship between patients and their oncologists and patients and palliative care physicians and asking them to estimate, asking physicians to estimate how long they thought patients had to live. And they found an interesting correlation between the length of time they had that therapeutic relationship and the error in their outcome. So if you'd known patients for a long time and you'd established a relationship with them, you were much more likely to err on the side of optimism in saying this patient will live a lot longer or the treatment I'm going to provide is going to be a lot better. And you get into this relationship where clearly the patient only wants to hear good news, the doctor only wants to provide good news. So that leads down a pathway of doing everything because you don't think actually and don't talk about the bad things that may be happening. We all know there is no treatment we give to anyone that does not have potential for side effects that may be significant. And because we don't measure a lot of stuff and we don't see people necessarily sent from a critical care perspective further down the track, we don't know what the long-term effects of doing good things, in quotes, with good intent to these people are. I always say we don't, we don't set out, we don't get up in the morning to do harm to patients, but it's an inevitable part of complexity in healthcare. By doing things with good intention, we often cause harm that we're often unaware of. And I think that, that feeds into this optimism bias because we, we want to do the best, but partly that blinkers us to the bad things that happen. And I'd, you, know, you, you mentioned, um, I, I feel that way you know, with the, the consideration, you know, the overestimation of good versus uh, the potential harm. Um, and I, I tell people about this with, with, the in, with the focus now on, especially U.S.-wise, on um, sepsis. 
and how, you know, if somebody comes in, you know, regardless, we want to screen them in, we're going to pound them with broad-spectrum antibiotics, they're going to get, um, they're going to get the Zosin, they're going to get Vank, maybe Mirapenem and Vank, they may get, throw something else on there as well, uh, because we want to meet this metric. But then every single person during flu season meets sepsis criteria and is getting pounded with these antibiotics, even though it's clearly a viral, potentially viral syndrome, without thinking about the potential harm of these of these medications now to this acute patient and also uh, down the road. And I think as medicine, we actually we need to open our eyes. I mean, you mentioned the blinders. Um, you know, being from horse industry uh, in the horse country, uh, you, you put the blinders on, and and it's very easy to see what you want to see. Uh, but there's a lot there's a, the picture is very large and I think you need to take in that entire picture when it comes to the therapies that we're utilizing um, on our patients in emergency medicine and the ICU I, I totally agree I think we also we also underestimate the effects of what we do at least within ICU the effects that it has upon the families of the patients that we look after because with regard to the end of life stuff that I was talking about once the patient's dead we assume that the family go through a grieving process and get over things but what we don't realize is that actually what we do has an impact upon the family's ability to cope with what we do and again I was mostly unaware of this until I started reading stuff around it in research for this talk as much as anything else looking at families and the perceptions that they have and the effects doing everything has upon them you'd assume families want everything done and if you do everything it would be great and it would better because that's the outcome they want but actually there's several studies looking at actually doing more in patients who are dying may actually cause longer lasting harm to the family. There's one study I quoted that looks at an odds ratio of one and a half times for depression, significant family depression, involving the death of a spouse when they were compared to patients who were also dying who didn't have ventilation, CPR, inotropes, balloon pumps, all these things that these other groups had had. So again, this kind of challenges the fallacy that the families want everything, the patient wants everything, therefore the doctor feels compelled to provide everything. Whereas in fact, that may not be the case. I think it's amazing how much, so much of it, what it comes back to is what we talked about before, which is essentially communication. But also as part of that optimism bias that doctors avoid the conversation because they don't like having it, patients probably don't want to talk about dying all the time. But also I think as physicians, we're morally obliged to not necessarily force that conversation, but to provide that other side of the story that maybe we could focus on not doing everything, being full curative intent and focus on everything meaning providing good quality palliative care for you and focusing on the quality of your life rather than the quantity of your life but the drivers for each individual patient are completely different people who want quantity of life may want to stay alive long enough to go to their daughter's wedding for example and that's all so context specific but if you don't ask these questions i think as physicians you're never going to know so you just do everything because that's that's the default full-on setting and that's actually a very good segue because we, uh, my wife and I, were in, in the talk and talking about the more depression in families of the of standard care, which you talk about in there as well. You know, something that's kind of turning the mindset on its on its head um, of the difference between the palliative care patients and the standard care patients. That it's not always not always doing more is better. That's true, but I, I think it does revolve around what the more is. More increasingly is, to use the cliche, more may be less. But it's not, it's not that the opposite of doing everything is doing nothing. It's just simply everything focuses on comfort care, improving the quality of the life and not the quantity. If you recognize quantity of life is limited, then it becomes more important to make that better quality. If you recognize quantity of life is limited and you disable them by ventilating them, rendering them unconscious, then you've removed the quality completely. What I tried to focus it on in the talk is to ask doctors to consider their own mortality. 
I mean, there's something I talked about last year as well, which is we're all going to die, and we don't like thinking about that as individuals. It's the only thing we and our patients have in common. 100% certainty is we're all going to die. And to almost reflect on what would we want for our death, and there was a paper I talked about last year regarding the number of doctors who wanted CPR as they were dying, and it's almost less than 10% because they recognise if you're dying from a palliative, from an end-stage disease, then CPR is futile. Yet we provide that by default to all the patients we look after because every hospital by default has a for-resuscitation policy. It's an opt-in, it's an opt-out rather than an opt-in. So I think, we, I think we're conflicted and I think we avoid difficult conversations, even if they're conversations that the patients want to have. Well, that's if you haven't read the article, Doctors Die Differently, it, it circles every year to um, about how, you know, physicians, and I actually use that as education to patients, and I think that conversation is very important. I mean, the number of folks, and I think that I think there's a paucity of conversations with physicians, with their patients, assuming somebody else is going to do it. Um, and I'll have conversations with, uh, and I've used this example as the 96-year-old stage 4 cancer a uh, patient with a head bleed who comes in and uh, the family wants everything done because they say their uh, mother, family member, whoever would want to live longer. And, you know, I think absolutely listening to your talks and, you know, reading the notes that we took inside the talk, um, you know, at the, that's a point where, you know, you have to have that conversation. And it's difficult in the emergency room because many times that person is unstable enough that then we're trying to wedge a lifetime decision into five minutes or ten minutes or even an hour as opposed to, you know, being able to have that conversation in a stable setting where you have all your faculties and there's not all of that stress. And so I still remember that conversation with that family of the 96-year-old. You know that uh, that I said. You know we're talking about her heart may stop or her she may stop breathing, and you know I feel like that. Well, it's it's here are the options. Here's we can do everything, but we're not going to get her back. So, so what happens from that is if. if the conversation just keeps not being had until you reach the point where the patient can no longer have the conversation because they're now unconscious and ventilated. And, you know, you're absolutely right. That conversation should have been had potentially in that unfortunate case with the family facilitated by someone, maybe with some medical experience explaining what that was, maybe their primary care provider. But the primary care provider is going to say, well, that's not my responsibility. I don't know what everything is. You know, I don't know what ICU can and can't do. So it, it, the, you see this sequential, what I called in the talk, this conveyor belt system, where the primary medic meets the patient who's unconscious and knows nothing about them so they intubate them they bring them to ED while you're gathering history the family show up and say we want everything done so the conveyor belt carries you from the community to the emergency department to the operating theatre to the CT scan to the ICU and at no point it gets increasingly harder to say let's think about what we're doing here guys because once you've got a surgical problem and there's a surgeon who's going to operate and there's an anesthetist who's going to anesthetise you you do it because that's your default but actually by the time the patients, you're right, there's, there's this paradox that by the time they're too sick to say no, they're too sick to have that conversation. I don't know whether this is a public health issue. This is something that needs to be addressed in a completely non-medical environment. But we, we as quick care physicians, myself and you, we're the ones who bear the brunt of it because we're at the end of it. And it causes not just for the poor outcomes for our patients by doing everything, there's significant stressors amongst healthcare populations as well. I mean, I think it's a major contributor to, to burnout is providing futile care that you deem professionally futile. And I've seen nurses in our unit who are, and doctors in our unit who are very challenged by being asked to provide care to patients that they think should just be receiving palliative care. And I think it, it, it wouldn't necessarily keep us awake at night, but I think 
we worry about things we are being, in quotes, forced to do because the healthcare system expects us, the family expects us, the patient expects us that we know is actually going to cause harm rather than causing good. I don't know how you break this cycle. I don't have the answer. Well, and I think it's, it's huge. And it's not that, um, and I don't think, I think the messaging is very important that, um, that limiting the resuscitation in terms of intubation, code, things like that is not giving up. Because I think the, I think patients and families especially see it as black and white. If we say no code, they they see we're giving up and letting grandma die. And I think being able to voice that um, we need to that this is what it means. And part of that conversation says, here's what I will do for your family member and want to do for your family member. But this part, and I and I, I'm pretty blunt. I say, you know, I feel like that if doing CPR on your 95 year old grandmother will just be abusing her on her way out, making it impossible. And if she lives, if she lives, she will live the remaining two weeks of her life, if that, or several days of her life, with multiple broken ribs, broken sternum, and possibly chest tubes. And I think when you put into context the reality of these resuscitation efforts, I think people are more receptive to it, but also understanding that you're not giving up. You're going to do everything up until that point, but if they get to that point, that's it's their time. And that's the hardest conversation. I think I think we're suffering, especially in North America. I think I think we are suffering from a feeling that we have beat mortality. That we that we have somehow figured out a way that we can make it. That we can keep going. That there is more on. There's more days that everybody can have. Uh, there was something I, I read in the newspaper this morning that has alarmed me more. I talked about it in my talk about the difference between um, lifespan and life expectancy, which is that life expectancy has increased significantly over the last probably 100 years and is continuing to do so. But lifespan had always been deemed relatively fixed at about 120 years. Um, I see, I haven't read the original article, but in Nature Now, there is a paper refuting this that potentially we may be able to live a lot longer than 120 years. And although that has potentially interest, I guess, to some individuals. I think from a healthcare system, that would be the biggest disaster to hit healthcare ever. Because if we're now looking at, as you say, having these conversations around 90-year-olds, imagine in 30 years' time having this conversation around 150-year-olds, saying, well, actually, we shouldn't be doing CPR on your great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. One of the things I talked about in my talk was, as we have removed, I kind of think of I didn't talk about it in the talk, but thinking about it since, of sort of death as an onion with all these skins around it. And we're just peeling off skins with each successful health prevention program that we do. We've removed cardiovascular disease or diminishing cardiovascular disease as a cause of death. So we peeled that layer off to find that the next layer is Alzheimer's. So the rise of patients in the US, and the most of the stats I got were from the US because they have a, you guys have a remarkable ability to produce high quality data, um, is that now the death rates of Alzheimer's are escalating. They're almost doubling every few years. Because, as I said in the talk, we're not outliving our hearts anymore. We're now outliving our brains. So we're, we have intact cardiovascular system that keeps us alive long enough for our brains to die from amyloid deposition. And this, to me, is just we, we've just changed the way we're dying. And arguably, we've changed the quality of the life we're having because we're now condemning people to survive with Alzheimer's, whereas previously they would have died from cardiovascular disease that we've, in quotes, cured. So if we believe we're going to live forever and there's a whole Medicare industry to some degree obsessed with making that happen and individuals who want that. I think the price we pay is that actually the quality of our lives are going to diminish. I agree fairly bluntly that we can have quality of life or quantity of life. And I think you're fooling yourself if you think you can have both. 
And that's and you talk about that. I mean, as a as a swipe. Um, my 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 wife is not political, so I assume she's uh, she wrote this quote down just as it as it was. You know, stealing from uh, the recent political uh, cycle, a, a curve on that one. Make dying great again, and. Um, you know, and I th- we talked about this last year. We talked about it when we s- said, you know, death is not necessarily the worst outcome. Sometimes, sometimes surviving is a worse outcome. And yet, all of our much of our research and much of our focus in healthcare has been on the negative endpoint being mortality. And of course, that is that is is a finite. It is a finite endpoint. I mean, it's we, it's it's you know, if the things in your life you only do once, it is it is the one. And so, um, but then reframing that, how do we reframe to, to, and help healthcare and our patients' families understand that, that death isn't necessarily the worst marker of success or failure? Well, that's a massive question. Did I just ask you the meaning of life? Yeah, that's right. You, you pretty much did. Why? <laughs> uh, I think... 3,000 years of religion has failed to answer that question. One smart-ass intensivist isn't going to give you an answer in a 30-second soundbite. So I, I, I defer to answer that question. Um, I, think, I think just asking is really important, and I think society as a whole needs to have a conversation with itself about what is deemed important, in, particularly from the financial component. There's this article I read that informed a lot of what I talked about entitled The Older Eating the Young because the older consuming all the money that the young who still pay taxes are generating costs for. And this change in the population distribution of a large number of young people who are paying taxes into the system to support the older people is now changing shape. We're moving from a, a heavy base triangle to a bulging middle age where people are moving up and they'll be retiring soon. And their healthcare costs, if they're not met by them, are going to be met by the people below them, of which there aren't enough. So I think it's, it's such a big question. I I don't have an answer to it, but I think as doctors, we're complicit in it because of all the things we've talked about, the need to do everything, the conveyor belt system, the fact that we can provide high quality healthcare and we can do things to people. We're trained to do things to people, so we will. But the long-term effects of that, I believe, are untenable. And I'm sure there are health economists and there are politicians worrying about this right now. But I think as doctors, we're largely oblivious to the effects of what's coming. This, what's been described as the grey tsunami of older people who are going to demand more with the same resources that we currently have. I'm absolutely not advocating things like euthanasia, which I had been accused of from my talk on Monday. But I think there is a we need to be practical and realize that money is not infinite the money tree does not exist and we need to have conversations not necessarily about rationing and certainly not about death panels like we talked about last time but this perception of doing everything for all and continuing to do so even in my career span is going to be have to be seriously readdressed for a variety of reasons we 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 cannot meet society's expectations and i think you know promoting that idea of dying with dignity and that's you know my education and conference i mean at conversations and many times is your family member is dying and i don't want to abuse them and through the tunnel you know there's no reason to beat them and abuse them on their last moments on this earth when you can spend time with them understanding the truth of what is happening i mean i think even in the united states the idea that the the nursing homes are punished for deaths in their facilities and so they have to ship them out right before they die to get them to the hospital so that statistic doesn't fall under them when it could be time i mean even remember with my grandmother they kept saying we want we want to move her out move her out move her out because she's dying 
And, you know, my father's a physician. I was a physician. My wife's a physician. I'm like, no, we want to be with her right here because we know what is happening. And that's making that translation, you know, for us in healthcare, just like that Dying Differently article, to our patients and to their families, that having those open conversations, being comfortable to talk with them about what is really happening, but then reaching out to you primary care physicians and, and physicians out there when a patient is stable and having those conversations um, so that they know ahead of time what is going to happen. Because I think the biggest challenge we face is the lack of education and knowledge among the rest of the populace. And if we can educate them on, you know, dying differently, uh, you know, and dying with dignity and, and knowing what you want or a family member wants ahead of time, and, you know, those comforts and, and palliative care, which I think is one of the greatest evolutions in modern healthcare, is the, palli- is the palliative care and hospice system. And everybody, I've never heard anybody refer to the hospice or palliative care system and say, man, I wish I would have put that off, you know, for a family member. I wish we'd have put that off longer. It's always, I wish we would have known earlier. And that's part of our our calling as doctor being defined as that that word educator teacher we're here to teach more than we are to 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 do to do things because you and i even more in in our career fields um we are witnesses to the natural progression of life and death and i think we have to take time to educate and teach and open eyes and help people understand that that um that the end of life is 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 not the worst and we we can actually we want to maximize that quality as opposed to celebrating just a little bit more quantity. I think it amazes me the more we talk how often we agree on things. It's ironic that both of us come from sort of acute care backgrounds, yet what we're talking about is actually almost the opposite of that. I think there's, it's unfair to ask, coming back to the education part of things, not just educating the public, but educating doctors, but also training them. There's this thing I talk about where the difficult conversation, I, I hate that phrase because there are a lot more things we do that are a lot more difficult. ECMO is difficult, yet we train people to do it. What we don't do to the same degree is train people to talk about not doing things. And I think we do doctors a disservice. And I'm aware, once again, I'm just throwing stones from the critical care glass tower, saying to people, talk to people about dying, talk to people about dying. But our system doesn't provide them with the education and the support to do that. I don't know what programs do. I mean, I know my critical care training didn't provide me other than one brief session on talking about organ donation and how to talk to families about them, their family members becoming donors, um, on how to actually talk to patients about not doing stuff. Everything is so driven to this is what you can do, but no one really trains in the communication skills that our palliative care colleagues have. And I, I'm almost at the point now, I think as part of ICU training, it should be mandatory to spend some time in a palliative care environment. Either working in a hospice, a lot of our trainees have been through hospice training to come to ICU because they, the value of it is huge. But I think at all levels, even primary care, to spend some time with palliative care physicians who have great expertise in this area that, that mine pales into insignificance compared to what they can do, to allow doctors to be comfortable about having that and investing in that early on could prevent so much iatrogenic harm maybe further down the track but I think it is it's unfair of me to say doctors must have this conversation and then say well you don't have the skills because no one's ever taught you how to do it and I don't think they're skills you can necessarily acquire there's a quote that Peter Brindley used that I always like which is the most dangerous procedure in the hospital is actually the family meeting because there's a great chance to do harm if you don't know what you're doing and certainly in a legal environment you could certainly do a lot of harm by saying something when you're not supposed to say something but 
there's, there's ways of doing it and there are definitely ways that work and ways that don't but I think if you're not trained to do something any more than saying go put an ECMO cannula in that kid you shouldn't say to a house surgeon or a junior doctor go talk to that family about their dying relative because I think that, that's almost abuse it's not fair on the doctors it contributes to burnout as I've said but without training these skills into people I just don't know how you do that, whether that's an undergraduate thing that we start doing more of or whether postgraduate courses have to rely on, as part of your training, training surgeons to talk to people about not doing surgery, training oncologists to talk to people about not giving chemo, training intensivists to not talk to people about not ventilating people. I think that's probably where we're going to have to go. And I think, you know, not just with dying, though, I think, I think it's a lost or a, a, an art that we're not we don't focus on enough is that education component of being a physician in general you know and I, I get so many patients in the emergency department who are there because whoever they saw before didn't give them the information expectations what they were going to experience what they were going to feel how long it was going to last and so they come to the emergency department not looking for a cure but looking more for answers and uh, you know I, th- I think we have to focus on that in terms of our training of how do we talk to people we are scientists so it actually is not doesn't come naturally to us uh, for most and we have to be able to educate on conversations how do you interact with people how do you talk with people how do you talk with families connect make that personal connection and it's actually more of our job than I think any of us realize it's more of our job than many of the other things procedures and things like that is talking with people educating and helping them understand and the largest complaints I see consistently in medicine are I was not informed adequately or they didn't tell me anything when my family members, nobody's come to talk to me or tell me what to expect or tell me what's going on. And I think that's the biggest thing that we can move forward through with medicine, not just with death, but across the board is figuring out ways to be able to spend time with our patients and their families and educate them on what's coming up. I'm nodding vigorously because I agree with everything you're saying, that the benefits of improving communication skills would far exceed us doing things to people when they're dying. Um, As you know, 80 to 90% of complaints don't involve outcomes. They involve poor communication about outcomes. Or people would be more accepting of bad things happening if they knew that beforehand that was going to happen. And often they didn't know because there was a communication failure somewhere along the line. So I guess my question back to you then is how do we... How do we ensure that we're selecting doctors who have the necessary... If, we, if we're saying we can't train them, then maybe we should select them beforehand to ensure they have better communication skills rather than just the pure science brains that medicine requires. Because medicine is as much an art as it is the science. We know that. But we tend to select the scientists and not the artists. You have to have that balance between the two. And there's a whole lot of stuff that goes with communication. Clearly, there's compassion. There's the ability to see things from the patient's perspective that as scientists, often we don't have because we're so focused on the science, the evidence, what the evidence tells us, that we forget we're doing this to a human being and there's someone on the other end of it. Is it that we need to make sure that the people we start training as doctors, that medical schools need to look at factors for compassion and communication so they these people already have these abilities to do this before we subject them to three four five years of medical school where we're training them to be scientists and not training them to be compassionate individuals i I completely agree because interestingly the medical school i went to the james h quillen college of medicine east tennessee state university you know fit that on a line but in my class there was an art major and there was a music major and, you know, people who didn't have a whole lot of, you know, other than their basic sciences necessary to qualify. And interestingly, 
those folks went into more communication-based areas, psychiatry, um, palliative care, things like that. And so they went into those relationship areas. And so I completely agree. We need to take that focus on the person who can draw out the cis and trans version of this molecule and the person who actually has that ability to communicate. And that's why I feel like, you know, that many times the best physicians are not those who uh, were able to ace every test and sit in front of the class, thank God, because that would have knocked me out. But it's the, you know, those that ha- are more rounded. And I think some schools are going there. I think some schools are going there. And then I think there's still other schools that are still looking for that, you know, that, that trophy wife that they can hold up and, and say, look what we got. We got the person who's been perfect their entire life. And, um, you know, I, I do think we need some evolution in the way I think we, you know, meta schools, we need to focus on communications and how do we address life and death and expectations and things like that. Um, as I, I, I tell people, I think anybody, almost anybody can do medical school if you're willing to put forth the effort, the work. Because really, it's, and, and for the most part, it's a lot of, it's just dedicating sitting in coffee houses and memorizing. And um, so, I mean, it's not like we're inventing things in, in medical school. It's just a lot of learning. But at the same time, I think there's still some of those parts in medical schools, and some schools are doing it. Some schools, I think, have it right um, in terms of those interpersonal, uh, professional, and family communications. And I think it's evolving, and I think it will evolve now as people that in our generation, it's very, very similar in terms of how, many, how long we've been out, and our generation's um, of people that are realizing that more and evolving. You know, I mean, even even conferences like this, where it's not as much about a bunch of slides with a bunch of research, but more about storytelling and and emotion and and pulling people into the conversation. And and so I think that change is happening. But you know, as with everything in medicine, you're talking about you know 30 to 40 years of providers, physicians out there that that you have to cycle through. So it's a generational shift as opposed to something where we can say today, hit that button and it changes. So, so far to summarize, we've rewritten the medical school curriculum to involve, and we've rewritten medical school selection criteria. We've agreed that (laughs) doctors need better communication skills. And we've decided that the public needs to be better informed about dying. And if we get all those things done, do you reckon we've solved the problem? Yeah, I think it's I think it's simple, and the fact that um, I think the fact with where you practice and where I practice, it is clearly a global phenomenon yeah. now, and so I think that's all it takes. That's great. Well, that's 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 so easy. We should start tomorrow. We should. Can we patent this? One of our countries, we should be able to patent this. We should. Probably not in mine. They have a slightly different attitude to dying from yours, maybe. I'm not sure, but uh, Kiwis like dying. <laughs> Well, that's, that was the amazing thing is the conversations we've had is, uh, and we actually talked about uh, before is like, what would you do in this case? And you're like, that's clearly a dying patient. And I'm like, I wish it were that simple in the United States. That 96-year-old head bleed, stage four cancer patient, you know, that there's still a conversation when actually there isn't a conversation. And that is, that is one area of jealousy of, uh, of your practice environment versus my practice environment is, is it seems like 
um, the folks in that uh, part of the world seem to have a more realistic view that we are all on a one-way street. And I think we both used the same quote that um, it used to say that the only two guaranteed things are death and taxes, but clearly taxes aren't guaranteed either. So there's only one thing that we all will experience at some point uh, during our life, and it'll be our finale, that's for sure. I think you're right. It's a joy to work in New Zealand for a variety of reasons. I mean, the main one is that there's a lot more accepting there's a lot more value on quality rather than quantity of life we we it's we know we've gone on too long when the family come to us and say look we're very grateful for all you've done but i think we should stop and it worries me when that happens because we'll go whoa you know what they're actually right when the nurses come to us and say we're uncomfortable providing ongoing care for this patient because we think they're dying we know we were too late as the doctors but when the families come to us and say thanks very much for all you've done but we think you should stop then we know we've probably gone on too long and it's it doesn't happen very often but I'm astounded by the number of meetings where you start to raise dying for the first time and the family are already three or four steps ahead of you and they're saying you know we've already had this conversation we'd like to thank you very much for all you've done but this is no quality of life we think we should stop and allow them to die and as we talked about last time the number of meetings where families have said to me there are worse things than dying continues to astound me yeah, if you haven't heard that podcast, it's still available on iTunes. And uh, a reference from literature for whom the bell tolls. I think it's uh, about a good time for us to uh, to wrap up. So, Alex, uh, give folks uh, how can folks contact you via uh, email and or social media. Uh, yeah, so if you want to contact me, my Twitter handle is at Syrides, which is P-S-I-R-I-D-E-S. It's a ridiculous name and very hard to spell, and I should have chosen a more punchy Twitter handle. But the novelty of having a unique surname is that no one else has it. The downside is you have to spell it all the time. So it's Papa Sierra Indigo Romeo Indigo Delta Echo Sierra. All right, and thanks again. I look forward to being in your backyard next time we... Uh well, not quite your, completely your backyard, much closer than, uh, than either of us currently are. And um, uh, thank you so much again, as, as usual, kindred, uh, kindred spirits from opposite sides uh, of the globe. And um, love the conversations that we have. And once again, just like last time, my 20-minute conversation is now almost a 40-minute conversation. But we've cut two minutes off this year, so uh, next time we may be able to get it close to the length of a uh, sitcom. As for me, you can contact me at Everyday Med on Twitter at Everyday Med or youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com if you want to use the uh, old uh, email. Also, uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast because you can get all these great podcasts that we get from uh, around the globe, especially the Das Smack uh, and uh, Smack Dub, which were uh, incredible conversations with uh, physicians and, and practitioners from around the globe. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and once again, the bell tolls, and this has been some ASAP Frontline.